everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. having a wonderful day. Today is Father's Day. We want to wish every man here a happy Father's Day. We are so grateful that God has brought you into this world, that you stand as a man under the grace and glory of God, and that God will use you, regardless of whether it is biological children or spiritual children, that God will use you to impart identity to those that he brings into your life, that we would be more like him. So happy Father's Day. Uh, One other announcement. If you remember last week, I'm going to be starting what's called a Pure Desire group. If you want some more information on that, it specifically deals with sexual freedom, which is so much more than what we have a tendency to assume it is. But we will be starting that in August. I've had some people reach out to me already with some interest in it. So once we uh, get that settled, we're going to go ahead and start that in August. And it is a wonderful program. Even if you think everything is fine with you, I would recommend you join it at least for about one month. It is a 10-month program, and it is fun and exhausting. I will promise you that. It is a lot of fun, though. Turn with me in your Bibles or on your apps, if you have them today, to the book of Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. And you know how I feel about preaching sermons that coincide with holidays. It's not something that I purposefully look for. I don't necessarily look at a calendar. I don't think to myself, well, it's Mother's Day, so I'll preach a sermon on mothers. Well, it's Father's Day, I'll preach a sermon on fathers. And it's this and that, and I'll go ahead and preach a sermon that relates to that. I usually just do my best to listen to the Father and what he would have me preach. And today it happens to coincide with Father's Day. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, It must be this way, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I find it interesting that right before Jesus is going into the desert to be tempted, if you continue reading, you'll see that the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord led Jesus into the desert to fast for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by the devil in all manner. I find it interesting that right before... Jesus goes into the desert, where the only question he's going to be asked the entire time by Satan is, if you are the Son of God, if you're really who you say you are, if God the Father is really your Father, in that you and the Father are one and the same, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Why don't you throw yourself off this cliff? Because it said he will give his angels charge over you and they'll not let your foot strike the ground. If you really are the Son of God, find it interesting that Jesus, whom is perfect in every facet, perfect in every way, right before he has to endure every single temptation that you and I will ever have to go through, God makes sure he says one final thing, this is my son, I'm his dad. Not only is this my son with 
whom I'm the father of. I, it's not only my son, and I want you all to know that. I want you to know I'm proud of him. I want you to understand I'm pleased by him. I want you to understand I am honored by him. I find it interesting that the only two times God ever makes this phrase, right before Jesus goes into the desert to be tempted in every facet, every way, every manner of temptation, everything you can imagine or think or have gone through or will go through. The second time God does it, if you remember, is on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you don't know that story, let me give it to you very quickly. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on top of this mountain. And up there, all of a sudden, he transforms from just his simple human form to the fullness of his divinity. And Peter, James, and John get to witness that. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear next to him. And Jesus starts having a conversation. And then God opens the heavens again and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What was happening shortly after that? The cross. Both times when Jesus was about to go through the worst torment of his life. And don't kid yourself. If you've ever been hungry for half an hour, you know how awful it would be to not eat for 40 days and 40 nights. But before he's tempted for 40 days, 40 nights, while he is fasting in the most desperate time of his life. The second time being right before he goes to the cross to carry and bear all the sin of the world. The first time to walk through what it is to be tempted and defy it by the grace and mercy of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The second time to bear the sin the stain, the shame, and the sorrow caused by the temptation when it has been given into. In both times, God makes sure before you even go anywhere near this, Jesus, you are my son, and I am proud of you. You are my son, and I am pleased by all that you have done. You are my son, and I am honored by you. Wouldn't it have been nice to hear that growing up by our dads? Well, preacher, Jesus' daddy was... God the Father, everything was fine. You really think so? You really think he didn't have a little bit of a hard time? You really think Jesus didn't have a father wound just like every other person born into this life? Think about it just for a half moment. He is born to a virgin Mary. Now, I don't know if you've ever met a virgin who gave birth, but I have not. And in fact, in all of history, there's only one person it's ever allocated to, and that's Mary. She gives birth to Jesus. Think of what she has to have a conversation with Joseph. Joseph, you know how we've never been intimate because we're not married yet? And Joseph's like, yeah, it makes sense. Why would you be pregnant? We've never had sex. You can't get pregnant. And now she's got to say, I'm pregnant. I would have been through the, you're what? Now Joseph was apparently way more righteous because I would have been running through walls and ripping down every two by four in that house in fury. And he thinks to himself, well, I'm not going to embarrass her. What do you mean embarrass her? She stepped out on you and now she's pregnant all of a sudden. And you mean you're not going to embarrass I'm not going to embarrass her. Instead, I just won't marry her and we'll just call it off. I'm not going to put her through all the turmoil and all the torment, even though that the law says that she has to be stoned as an adulterer. I'm not going to go ahead and do that. Instead, I'll just set this aside. And then an angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, she's pregnant with the Son of God. It's not that she stepped out on you. It's not that she's done something wrong or right. No, the Holy Spirit has placed inside of her the fullness of God coming down in human form. And you're the dad, Joseph. I'm the what? You're the dad. Can you imagine being the dad of God? Oh, the father's fine. But God, what, what does he do with the earthly father? Do I spank him if he does something he doesn't understand? Because remember, Jesus, little baby, he's walking around. He might be perfect and never sin, even from birth all the way until the ascension. That doesn't mean he had, couldn't be taught 
Because he's a little baby. He's got to go through all of it. He probably went over to the fire that Joseph would have been working on one time and started putting his hand close to it. And Joseph would have had to say, no, don't do that. And Jesus, in his little baby form, not really understanding the concept of no, would get excited and say, ooh, pretty. I'm going to go touch it and run back towards the fire. And Joseph trying to save him from hurting himself or out in the carpentry garage where they're working on something. And Jesus reaches up to start playing with the hammer. And all of a sudden, Joseph runs over and swats that hand away and slaps it. And he thinks to himself, I just struck God. What do I do? I kneel down and pray and repent to the God in heaven. Do I kneel down and pray to this little baby right here? What do I do? And now it's even worse because as Jesus gets older and older, all of Nazareth where he is living. Mary, you got pregnant awfully fast after the wedding. In fact, it looked like you were showing a little bit before the wedding, Mary. What happened? And all of a sudden, all of that, you know how people like to talk. Anytime they find out something, they get some tea to spill. They get so excited. They're like, I've got something to tell you. Did you hear about Mary, the most righteous one in all the town? Apparently, she got pregnant before the marriage. And guess what? Joseph's not the father. Holy Mary. Oh, not so holy now, are you, Mary, if they ever got pregnant? And Jesus walking around. You think they didn't look at him a little different? This little illegitimate boy, born out of wedlock, not even belonging to Joseph, and then coming to realize Joseph isn't his real father because he is the son of God. Listen, I don't know how all of it works, but keep something in mind. God the Father is in heaven. Joseph, his earthly father, is not his biological father. And when you're working through that, even though Jesus is perfect, even though he is the fullness of God in person, which means he's never sinned, it does not mean that he escaped the harm and pain that life would inflict. He came into this world with no sin in him. He left this world with no sin in him. He defeated sin on the cross for you and me. That does not mean that he escaped all the sorrow and pain and agony that we would go through. Jesus had a father wound every bit as much in Israel as everyone who has ever lived because he had to work through it. If this isn't my real dad, what does that mean in our conversation? If my father is in heaven who is so far away, how do I deal with this? And all the, Do you understand the reason why Jesus would go off by himself so many times to pray, not just because he was trying to be spiritual, but because he's trying to be close to the Father, the one that gives him identity, the one that gives him assurance, the one that gives him foundation. And in all his life, he's fighting through this father wound and empowered by the Holy Spirit and never giving in to the things that we have a tendency to give into in our lives as a result of the pain inflicted to us by our dads. Are you realizing how important a father is? This is not a sermon about you've been a bad father. This is not a sermon about you're a terrible dad. This is not a sermon about you've screwed it up. This is a sermon about the reality that the father is so important that when he is missing or when he is neglecting or when he is distant or when he is abusive or when he just decides that you don't matter to him or even if he is loving and you had a good father, what ultimately ends up happening is because of the imperfection of humanity, a wound is inflicted on every man, woman, boy and girl by a father, whether it it is present or absent. A wound is given to everyone by the Father. And if we do not learn how to draw close to the Father, we will give in to that wound and we will find ways to medicate and to cope through life without having to ever deal with it. 
Some of us, our father wounds have born in us bitterness. Some of us have, it is born into us isolation. Some of us, it's born into this aspect where I've got to control everything. Or I've got to figure out how to not deal with stress. Or when I get overwhelmed with stress, then I get too angry. Or when everything is overwhelming to me, I start looking at pornography. Or when I don't like this, I just take out my anger and frustration on everyone else. Or if I don't like what's happening, I just work and work and work so that I don't have to deal with the reality. We find ways to not have to address the deep pain in our lives caused by our fathers. Preacher, well, I had a good father. I bet you did. Let me explain something to you. Even if you had a good dad, he wasn't perfect. Remember when Jesus was talking about fathers? And he said, how many of you fathers, if your son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for fish, would give him a scorpion? If you being evil fathers know how to give good things to your sons how much more will the father listen he is talking about the reality of the brokenness of humanity saying that doesn't matter how good a dad you had there's something born into you that strikes you deep to your core that makes it difficult to work through life well preacher i had a good father that's not fair i know i had a good dad i had a great upbringing i didn't have any wounds inflicted on me by my father i promise you you did and here's how i will show you i love my dad some of you have met my dad he's a pretty good guy and if there was ever a christian that i wanted to model myself after as a man it would be my father because i would be busy doing things as a teenager that i shouldn't be doing way up into the middle of the night and then all of a sudden in the summer when i would come up from the basement to the upstairs because in ohio you had basements as I would try and sneak back to my room at about 5 a.m. my dad would be sitting there on the couch and he wasn't waiting for me watching for me to catch me in what I was doing no he was face down on the couch praying for me and praying for my sister praying for my little brother praying for his wife and interceding every morning at about 5 a.m. he would apparently be praying before he decided to come and wake me up to make him go for a run with him which I think was abusive but that's besides the point but he was every day 5 a.m down in the living room, kneeling by the sofa, praying. I would try and sneak by. My dad was at baseball games. My dad would practice with me with baseball. I was not good at baseball. That is not his fault. He was not good at baseball either. That was not our thing. My dad was at every wrestling match. He would videotape me, and then he would take me home and say, you did really good here on this. We're going to watch this and see where you messed up so we can get better here. He wasn't scolding me or anything. He was saying, let's get better at this. My dad, when I started fighting as an adult, would make sure that he was there at my ringside watching my cage matches. That's kind of interesting how much he loved me. I don't know if he was angry at me as I was growing up because he liked to show up and watch me get beat up, but maybe that was his getting back I remember one time I was so down I was part of Team Ohio for wrestling and I am out in Fargo North Dakota the most boring place I have ever seen in my life I did not know there was a place worse than Kansas. I've driven through Kansas, and then I go to Fargo, North Dakota. Not only am I in North Dakota, but I'm wrestling. So guess what that means? I don't get to eat a lot of food. So now I'm bored and hungry. And here's the thing. It's a national tournament. So there's Team New Jersey, Team California, Team Iowa, Team Michigan, everyone. I mean, there are tens of thousands of wrestlers there, and I'm there to compete, and I get knocked out so fast. <laughs> These people were so much better than me. I don't know how I ever made the state team so that I could go compete on a national level it was embarrassing how bad I lost but then I just started kind of feeling lonely 
everybody was really different. Even the other people who got knocked out, you know, they just, they weren't really Christians and they liked to go and do stuff. And there were girl wrestlers there too who were very attractive, very terrifying because they were stronger than me. And so now everybody's doing things that I don't really jive with. They're going out and watching movies that don't really fit with me. They're having conversations that just make me feel isolated because it's not something I'm going to engage in. I call my mom crying because I'm so lonely and I don't know what to do and I can't do anything because we're there for another five days while the tournament finishes while my teammates win and I just watch them win and I stand on the sideline yay I'm crying my dad is in California at a job he's working on on some type of engineering thing he's working on the drive he reaches in and the belt grabs his ring finger thankfully he wasn't wearing his wedding ring that day but it rips off his skin all the way almost down to the bone so from just below the first knuckle on his ring finger all the way to about the middle of his hand gets ripped by this belt so he gets rushed to the hospital while I'm crying in Fargo North Dakota feeling lonely and bad for myself he gets surgery rearranges his flights after the surgery and flies out to North Dakota instead of going home to my family so he can spend time with me to help me feel better. I had a pretty good dad growing up, I would say. I would think I had one of the better Christian dads that has ever been in all the world. And that's not to make anybody jealous or say I had it better than you, but let me be clear on something. There was one thing that my dad said all the time that until just recently, about two years ago, has stuck with me. Pay attention. I remember working on a little motor I was doing for a third grade project, and I had to write in all caps to explain it because my handwriting was so bad, so my dad said, you're not allowed to write normal letters, you have to write in capital letters so that everybody can actually read it. And I would start writing in capital letters, and I'd get to the second letter, and I'd accidentally write it in lowercase, and he'd take it, he'd rip it up, and say, no, pay attention, write it properly. And so then I'd start going again, and I'd make it all the way to the last letter, and I'd accidentally write a lowercase letter, and I couldn't fix it to make it look like a capital letter, so he'd take it and rip it up, said, no, pay attention and so then I do it and about 10 times later now he's ripping it up and throwing it off to the side and saying no pay attention and so I would start writing again and I would get to the first letter and I'd be so overwhelmed by messing it up so many times and him saying the words pay attention that I'd make the lowercase letter instead of a capital at the and he'd rip it up again and throw it to the side pay attention Let's go to another. I remember he was teaching me how to learn how to drive a stick. And he said he wanted me to balance it with just the clutch and the gas pedal. It would have been easier if he just let me do the clutch. But for some reason, he said, you're going to learn how to do it with the clutch and the gas pedal. And we're in a stick shift of a car. I know how to drive that, by the way. So when the apocalypse happens and no one knows how to drive a stick shift, I will be perfectly fine with the rest of the people who have been taught by their dads that love them. But in the meantime, while he was teaching me, I'm sitting there and I start doing it. The car would stall because I messed it up. He said, that's okay. Just try again. Swing back around. Try again. He had me doing this on a hill, by the way. It wasn't that I got to, like, practice on a plane. He said, all right, we're on a hill. And this hill, it was probably a, just a slight incline. But to me, it felt like I was driving up straight because I couldn't get this right. So I do it. And then I stalled. No. Try again. Pay attention. Here's how you do it. No. Try again. And after about 10, 20, 30, an hour later, would you pay attention as I'm in tears hearing my dad say the words pay attention let's go to times when I was practicing music and I was getting the tempo wrong pay attention let's go to the times when I wasn't doing my math homework correctly because I was rushing through it I was very very good at math so I didn't think I needed to focus that much because it was very easy for me to get through it and then I would bring my math grade home and it would be a b plus instead of an a and my dad would look over it and he'd hand me the problem that I got wrong he'd say what's the answer to that and I would do the problem and I'd get it right he'd say why didn't you get it right on the test I say I don't know I think I I 
just went through it quickly. I went back and reviewed it. And he looked at me and said, you weren't paying attention, were you? And then we would go to other things. And he'd say, would you pay, it, pay attention here? Pay it let, me say, let me explain something to you. My dad was trying to get me to slow down, to understand that there were things in the world that if I go too fast, I was going to miss them. But when you start hearing that as a little five-year-old boy, no matter how kind he was when he said it to me, what ends up happening is internally you start thinking to yourself, well, I can avoid mistakes if I pay attention. Which means if I can avoid mistakes if I can pay attention, then that means the only reason I make mistakes is because I wasn't paying attention. If the only reason I make mistakes is because I wasn't paying attention, then that means as long as I am ideal in paying attention to everything around me, I'll never make a mistake. Yes, there will be things in my life that I cannot control. Yes, there will be things that are outside of my ability to influence. But as long as I pay attention in my life, anything that I can control, I will never make a mistake. And you know what happens when you have that outlook on life? You start thinking, well, there's no reason to make mistakes, which means there's no reason to be imperfect. And when there's no reason to be imperfect, anything you've done in your past then becomes a blight when you were just too lazy or too quick. And all of a sudden you realize that's my fault that happened. That's my fault that happened. All of this. And let me explain to you what really happens. Then Satan walks in. I had a great relationship with my dad. I love him. He is the best poppy in the world to my kids. They love him so much. I don't even exist when he comes around. I go in to wake up Leo in the morning when he suddenly wakes up too early and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. I'm like, oh my goodness, please go back to sleep. But if Poppy is around, I go into there and I open it up. And if Leo knows Poppy's around and I open it and I say, all right, Leo, I'll get you up. He'll say, no, Poppy. He's like, I'll get you up and bring you out to him. He's like, no, Poppy is still asleep. I will bring you out. No, and he'll just sit there in the crib waiting for my dad to wake up. No, I want Poppy. I'm like, I, I'm nothing to you anymore. That's You understand I'm the one that made you. I realize he is the prime example of me, and I'm almost cast exactly in his image, but I'm your dad. He just got me here so I could get you here. Poppy, I was like, you know what? Fine, and I'll just let Poppy go ahead and take care of all of it. I love my dad. I love my relationship with him. But the words pay attention echoed through my entire life. Out of curiosity, am I a quiet person? Some of you laughed. Shut up. It could have just been an answer of a no. I, I, Tom, when you're teaching, do I ask questions sometimes? So I don't know everything. And when I'm confused on something, I ask questions. Now, I'm the pastor of this church. That makes me the most knowledgeable spiritual person in this entire church, obviously. So I shouldn't be asking questions at all. I was taught that ask a question that makes you look stupid if you don't know so that you can learn something. I love asking Tom questions because when I ask him, I learn something. I love asking Mary Lee questions when she's teaching because when I ask, I learn something. And I don't ask them just so I'm trying to make it look like I'm participating. When I ask them a question, I'm actually asking something so they can teach me something because I don't know everything. Everything. And so I run my mouth all the time, whether it's in class. I don't understand this. What about this? And I'm not a quiet person. So even if there's no class, I'm always loud and having fun and joking around, except for one time in my life where all of a sudden I stopped asking questions. And all of a sudden I got real quiet. Somewhere around the age of five or six. I've told a bit of the story before when I was molested. It was a young man who was very, very troubled. He was a teenager, 
And my parents had come into contact with him, and they saw that he was broken, that he had an absent father, and that he needed to be loved. And so they, in the kindness of their hearts, invited them, invited him into our house to hang out, and he would play with me, normally in the presence of my parents, whether it was downstairs and all these things and back and forth. And it was fine, and it was wonderful. He was receiving love from a godly father and a godly mother. I was getting to play with someone. It was fantastic. And then we're upstairs in my bedroom playing one day, and he says, if you want to be like Jesus... And he uses the reality that he knew that I love Jesus. And he used my naivety and innocence. And he used my parents' trust and love and mercy for him to sexually take advantage of me. I'm always loud. Why is it that's the time I got quiet? Something inside of me said before anything even happened that something was awkward, something was wrong. Something is not quite right here. Why is it now I decided I'm not going to ask questions? I always ask questions. In fact, teachers get frustrated with me. My parents would get frustrated with me because I would just always ask questions. Why is it now all of a sudden when he tells me that I don't ask a question? And all of a sudden you show up at 32, 33, 34 years old. And you look back at a little five-year-old boy who was overwhelmed by what was happening around him and what was happening to him. But when all you've heard throughout your entire life echoing in your soul is pay attention, you don't have an excuse to make a mistake. Pay attention. There's no reason things should happen to you as long as you're paying it. You want to know what ends up happening as a 32, 33, 34, 35, 36-year-old? If you never take care of that wound, you start looking at that five-year-old little boy who had no hope of getting out of there unless someone came to rescue him. But because you assume it was pay attention, little five-year-old boy's fault. The person I went to counseling when I was dealing with all of this, not too long ago, by the way, the person I went to counseling looked at me so confused, and she said, why are you not mad at the young man who did this to you? I said, because he was broken. He was wounded by the world, and he didn't know any better. But I knew better. And she said, you were a five-year-old boy. Why aren't you mad at your parents who let him be alone with you? Because they loved me, and they loved him, and it wasn't their fault that it happened. Yes, but they let him be alone with The only person whose fault it was is that five-year-old version of JJ, who all of a sudden decided to stop being loud and stop asking questions because he wasn't paying attention. Do you know why I told you all of the wonderful and great things about my dad first? Because even though he's been present in my life, even though he has showered me with love, even though he has been a model to me to learn how to love and worship and serve God, look at the wound he gave me that caused me to despise myself unto the point where I almost took my life because I could not handle the self-loathing I had that I, for myself. I didn't hate that I'd gotten molested. I hated myself for letting it happen because I wasn't paying attention. I didn't hate myself for the divorce that I went through before I ever met Christina. I hated myself for not paying attention enough to maybe some red flags I could have noticed earlier. I didn't hate myself for breaking my legs and going into ministry instead of the Naval Academy. I hated myself for not paying attention earlier in my life to the call of God that pay attention. you see how desperately wounded we all are? Do you see how deep it runs into us? There's a reason Jesus had to hear the Father tell him, you're my son. 
There's a reason he had to hear the father not just say, you're my son, but I am pleased by you. And the Bible is filled with father wounds. Let me give you the worst father wound that the Bible has ever shown. You know who David is? I like David. You know why? Because David's a hot mess and God still loved him. And David still loved God. But David, remember when Samuel came to anoint the king? Comes to Jesse. Jesse, I'm here to anoint one of your sons, the next king of Israel. Now, Jesse's got to be feeling pretty good. One of my sons is going to be king of Israel. I knew that Saul was no good. Probably got no idea what's going on. Maybe didn't like him. Probably had his own politics. I knew that Saul was a Democrat. I knew that Saul was a Republican. I knew he wasn't any good. I'm so, one of my boys that I've raised is going to be the next king of Israel. And so he brings out the oldest, Eliab. Here is my son Eliab, Samuel. Go ahead and anoint him. And Samuel looks at Eliab and says, man, this has got to be the next king. Look at him. He is handsome. He is tall. He is powerful. He is from a good house. Let's go ahead and anoint this guy. And God says, that's not him. So Samuel says, not him. Next son. Brings out the next son. This has got to be the son, God. Look at him. He's just as handsome. He's just as powerful. He's just as tall. And he's the second son. You know what that means, God? He doesn't have first son syndrome where he thinks he knows everything and he's got to boss everybody around and tell them what to do. This has got to be the one. And God says, not that one. Goes through about seven sons. None of them good enough for the anointing. None of them who God had selected. Samuel says, do you have any other sons, Jesse? Now, we know David's out there tending sheep. And when we read the word of God, it says, I have the youngest son who is tending sheep. And Samuel says, go get him, bring him here. And Samuel anoints David. Did you know that when you go back to the original Hebrew, when Jesse says, I have the youngest son, the translation is more accurate to say, I have this worthless boy. David wasn't put out with the sheep because dad was trying to teach him the trade that he taught all of his other sons. David was out in the middle of a field with the sheep because dad Jesse looked at him from a young age and said, you're useless to me. You have no value. You have no worth. And he tossed him out into the field to be isolated. He said, I don't need you. You don't forget your own son. Bring me your son so that I can anoint one of them king of Israel. If you know that, you don't forget about a son. You bring whichever one it's going to be so that you have the king of Israel anointed. And yet Jesse goes through all his sons and he stops. You want to know why? It's not that David was the youngest and Jesse didn't think he was ready for it yet. It's that to Jesse... David was useless. David was worthless. David didn't matter. David had no value. There was nothing useful about David to the family. He didn't bring anything. He didn't have anything. He was pointless, valueless, useless. And Jesse said, I have a worthless son. And all of a sudden, God anoints him king of Israel. Everything you do that is sinful is your own fault. Do not misunderstand. You make a choice to engage in sin. It is your responsibility. At the same time, almost everything you do that is sinful can be traced back to a wound that was inflicted on you deep in the depths of your soul that you've not let God heal yet or that he's not revealed to you that he's ready to heal yet. You want to know why David 
as the king sees Bathsheba and thinks to himself, my Because he didn't have a dad teaching him that he was valued. He didn't have a dad teaching him that he was loved. In fact, David didn't even have a spiritual father to do those things for him. Sometimes when we don't have a physical, biological father, by the grace and mercy of God, God ends up bringing someone into our lives who can be a spiritual father to us and minister to that father wound so that it is healed in such a way that God can grow something out of it that is in glory to him. But David's spiritual father, Saul, whom he was brought to, because it said Saul loved him like a son. And not only that, Saul had David marry his daughter, Michal. So David David is now not only having a spiritual father as Saul, but he's got a father-in-law. But Saul starts getting jealous of David. So Saul, in his frustration, starts trying to murder David, invites him to a feast. Let's celebrate you, David. And while David is sitting there, Saul grabs a spear and hurls it at David to kill him. David escapes, and he starts running for his life as Saul hunts him for about the next 10 or 15 years of his life, trying to murder him. So not only did he have a dad who told him he was worthless, the dad he thought he got as the replacement, as the blessing from God, is now trying to end his life. And his whole life, he's sitting there, God, why is it nobody wants me? Why is it I can't have a dad who thinks I'm worth anything? God, why is it I can't just have a dad who loves me? Why is it that anytime I do something good, they either throw me out to the field and say, I've got to hide you, or they try and end my life because I've done something so awful? God, what is so wrong with me that a father can't look at me with love? And then comes Bathsheba. David says, she's beautiful. And maybe if I can have her, I can quiet some of this screaming wound. Maybe I can use it as an anesthetic and make it stop for just a moment. Who did David and Bathsheba ultimately have as a child? Solomon. David's got a father wound. Solomon is his son, the wisest king that ever lived. Did you know that right before Solomon is crowned king of Israel, as David is on his deathbed, David looks at Solomon and says, if it wasn't for God, I wouldn't let you touch the throne. He looked at his son and said, you're not who I picked to be king. God is. I don't want you on that throne. God wants you on the throne. I want Absalom. I want my son who is handsome. I want my son who is strong and powerful, who is charismatic. Solomon, you're the son of me and Bathsheba, the woman who I took to myself after I had killed my best friend, one of the men who had been with me when I was on the run for my life. Solomon, you're not the rightful king in my opinion. You're just some secondary son, and Absalom is the son that I would pick for the throne. How do you like that? On his deathbed, the last words he gets from his father is, you're worthless. What was the wound David had from his parents? You're worthless. You ever wonder how someone so wise could have so many wives? First of all, one wife is difficult. Solomon has 300, and in addition, he has 700 concubines on top of that. Now, most of those were probably political marriages. It's very unlikely that he was even sexually intimate with even a small minority of them. A, physically not possible. B, very unlikely just because it was very young women who couldn't do that. They were just given by other kings. Here's my daughter. Marry her. Now we're friends. Now we can go ahead and trade freely. We don't have to worry about it. However, 
What is interesting about it is that as the Bible progresses, it says that Solomon loved God, but his wives led him into sin, teaching him to burn strange incense to false gods. What's happening with Solomon? I'm worthless, but maybe if I can, maybe if I can make all my wives happy by showing them some fashion how I, I can let them worship their God. You want to know why Israel got completely splintered into pieces? Why it went into exile? Because at some point along the line, Israel and Judea started worshiping false gods, rejecting Jehovah, who had brought them out of Egypt and said, we'll go ahead and do what we want. You want to know how Israel found itself there? Yes, it was their own fault, their own responsibility for the sin they made. But let me explain something. The inroads that made that possible were born out of Solomon, who felt so worthless because his dad told him he was worthless on his deathbed right before he takes the throne, that Solomon starts trying to find satisfaction and some type of hope of perfection and value in all his wives that he starts giving them whatever they want even if it is antichrist. The only reason that he was given that wound is because he had a father David who before David was ever anointed was hunted by his father-in-law and told he was worthless by his biological death. The father wound passes from father to son to grandson and when it is not dealt with in a way of healing, not dealt with in a way of mercy, not dealt with in a way of grace, nobody needs to be told they're sinning when they know they have a father wound. They understand they're doing something wrong and anti-God. What people need when they are stuck in sin as a result of a wound inflicted them from on them by the Father is not someone to stand over them, wag their finger, shake their head, and say, I'm disappointed. What they need is someone to be sent into their life by God the Father as a spiritual father and to look at them and say, this was given to you by a broken father and there is a perfect father that wants to heal it. Should you be doing these things? No. But let me explain the reason why you do these things. Here's the brokenness in your life. And rather than shaming people over the wounds given to them by their father, God wants us to go in and minister. David never had one person minister to him in the wound given to him by his father. And it cost Israel almost their entire existence. not asking you to blame your father. This is not a blame game. This is not a, it's your fault, dad. It's not what it is. What I am asking you is when God walks in and begins to poke at that very tender point in your life and that pain begins to flare up, instead of running from it and trying to do whatever you can to make it shut up, I'm asking you to let God begin to heal it. And it is going to hurt, and it is going to be exhausting. I've never met anyone who's come out of any type of surgery, no matter how minor. I've never met anyone come out of that operating room, skipping and doing backflips as though they just had a wonderful eight-hour sleep. doesn't matter how healthy you are. They come out exhausted, broken, in need of recovery. And when God comes to you and begins to deal with the wound that is so deep that it has been there probably not even for the last five years but has been given to you for generations it's going to be exhausting but I've also when a surgery goes well and correctly never seen anybody who six months later 
a year later, however long the recovery is, I've also never seen someone who's received the proper surgery, given the proper recovery time, not live a more full life. You can limp the rest of your life, and you'll limp right into heaven. I promise you I'll see you there. This has nothing to do with heaven or hell. But God does not want you to wait until heaven to have the things that should have been given to you be fully realized. You want to know what your father is supposed to do? You want to know what a spiritual father is supposed to do? Exactly what we see God the Father do for Jesus right before he goes through the most intense. Let me remind you of something, Jesus. You're my son. Let me remind you of something else. I'm pleased. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm not embarrassed by you. I don't find you to be less than. You bring me joy. You bring me excitement. And even though Jesus was perfect, the same needs to apply to us in our lives. The thing that is missing the most in the world today is for there to be men of God who look at their sons, both biological and spiritual sons, and begin to breathe life into them that says that young man or that young woman is not an embarrassment. Rather, they are a point of joy and excitement and pride. This young man or this young woman is not someone who is worthless. They are someone who is full of innate value unto the glory of God. The only reason we see such a fracturing of our society today because there's no fathers left. That's it. Women, that's not to devalue you. I've preached many times before how important you are, how valuable you are to the kingdom of God, how things fall to pieces when you are absent as well. But today God wants to deal with the wounds from the father. He wants to restore things that were stolen from you. Because even when you have a good father, all it takes is a little of a piece for Satan to waltz in and manipulate and contort things into the most bitter and ugly of circumstances. And I promise you, by the grace of God, had he not brought me to a Christian counselor, by the grace of God, had he not brought me Christina so that she could actually see the brokenness in my life and recommend to me that I go to a Christian counselor. By the grace of God, had I not received those things, I would not be preaching to you today because I would have already taken my life. I am not lucky. I am not better than anybody. I am not more spiritual than anybody. I just happened to intersect with the sovereignty of God and his grace and mercy at the right time. And he said, it's time to heal you of this before it kills you. And I believe he wants to begin that process for some people today. I'm sure there are a myriad of things we can think of that we need help with. And I'm sure our memories are flooding right now. But the altar call is just this. Let God the Father today begin to heal you of a wound that is so deep that you might have even forgotten where it came from. And I would love to pray with you and be the audible vocal part of the mouth of God telling you that he loves you, that he finds joy in you, that he finds no embarrassment, 
but rather a deep sense of pride and excitement that you are his son, that you are his daughter. 